Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I'd also like to welcome you if you're a guest with us this morning. Uh, you come as we're in the middle of a series on the book of Exodus. And this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. You'll find that on page 53 if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles. So we're looking at Exodus uh, now several weeks in and through the course of the summer. What we've been talking about week in and week out, and we'll continue to talk about, is that Exodus is a book about God setting His people free. It's a book about freedom. And so we're going to see the next step, and in many ways, one of the climactic steps of the Bible of God setting His people free. Uh, as we look at uh, the institution of, the, of uh, the festival and the day of salvation that is Passover. So we're going to find this in Exodus 11 and 12. Please pray with me, and then we'll read our text for this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have right now to come before you as you come to us in your word. And so we ask right now that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that we might see you in your word, open your word to us, that you might do your work, your good work of changing us, drawing us close. And so we ask this by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to pick up with uh, verse 4 of chapter 11. If you were here last week, we talked about the plagues, uh, of which there are ten, and this is the tenth climactic moment of God's judgment on the people of Egypt. And uh, as we pick up here, Moses is standing in the presence of Pharaoh, and this is the end of, of their exchange as Moses tells him about what's what's about to about what's what's about to happen. Verse four. So Moses said, "Thus says the Lord." About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me, and they'll bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor will take according to the number of persons. According to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it with your feet, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And skipping down to verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall keep His service, this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did, as, did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. And skipping to verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This morning we come to the text, a central text, when after the first ten chapters of Exodus building up to this moment, God finally brings His people out of Egypt. He finally frees them. Pharaoh finally breaks and he lets God's people go. Everything's been pointing to this, and this moment of freedom is what gets memorialized in the festival of Passover. But we're going to see two things this morning about this text, um, about God's act of redemption, of His salvation of His people. So we're going to look at two things here. That Passover brings to us a new redemptive reality, and it brings to us a new redemptive consciousness. Okay, a new redemptive reality and a new redemptive consciousness. First, a new redemptive reality. Let's look at what happens at Passover. It opens up with Moses in the middle of this very sharp dialogue uh, with Pharaoh. As he continues to come to Pharaoh and, and give him God's command that he would let God's people go, he ends with announcing this final act of judgment on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the people of Egypt. Um, this uh, incredible act of judgment that God is going to come through and He's going to strike down the firstborn of every household, in including even the animals of the field. God's coming through in judgment because of Pharaoh's uh, murder of uh, the Israelite children, because of Pharaoh's oppression of his people, because of Pharaoh's uh, hatred towards Israel. 
whom God calls His firstborn son. God says, I'm going to come and take your firstborn son. It's an act of judgment. And in the middle of that, he announces that he's going to preserve his own people, the people of Israel. He says that you know, among the people of Israel, not even a dog will bark. But there's going to be great destruction everywhere else. And if you're familiar with the plague, the plagues that lead up to this, you may remember that beginning with the fourth plague, uh, God has already begun to make a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. Okay? The people of Israel are located in this region called Goshen in Egypt. And so, for example, last week we talked about the plague of hail. And hail comes and strikes down everything in the land of Egypt except in Goshen where God's people, Israel, are living. All around it, but not there. He spares his people. And we see that he's going to spare his people here also. But he's going to do it in an incredibly dramatic way. Not simply saying, well, we're not, I'm not going to come in and destroy the firstborn of Israel. There's a provision that has to be made so that God will pass over his people, Israel. Um, he says that they have to make a sacrifice. That there has to be a sacrifice of a lamb. And there has to be blood that's put on the doorpost. And God says, when I come and I see that, I will pass over you. And the destroyer, as it's called here, the plague will not come into your home. what happens at Passover. Now let's talk about what Passover means. Okay, that's, that's what happened. What's the significance of that for them and for us? Passover means that no one can stand under God's judgment. Okay, that's what it shows to us. Because look again in our passage. Who, who is in danger of God's judgment here in Exodus chapter 11 and 12? It is everyone. It is Egypt and Israel alike. Because God says, I'm coming to bring this plague against Egypt. But he also says to the Israelites, unless you perform this sacrifice and put this blood on the doorposts, then you will not be passed over. Then you too will taste my judgment. In other words, in a very real sense, the people of Israel and the people of Egypt are in the same boat. They are both in danger of feeling the weight of God's judgment. They're both in the same boat. And they are saved, the Israelites are saved, how? Only through this sacrifice and this blood that's spread on their doors. Passover's name, Passover, if you look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 12, it says, The Lord passed over the houses of Israel and Egypt when He struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Okay, when you think about this idea of being, or this, this phrase of being passed over, when you think about being passed over in, in your own life, what, what do you think of? I mean, likely maybe you think of a time when you were passed over for um, a, a, a job, a promotion, a date. Uh, you know, what, what are the things you've been passed over in your life? Because I, um, I heard a lot of laughs there. Uh, uh, what are, the th- what are the things you think of when you think of being passed over? I, I-, I remember, uh, to, m- to my own shame, the thing that comes to my mind is w- graduating from college. And w- when I was in school, I was an English major and, and got my teaching certification. And so I, along with some, uh, several other students that were doing the education stuff, we had our student teaching second semester of our senior year. So every morning at 5.30 before the sun was up, we'd gather together and carpool to the school and we, with the high school where we were teaching. And, and no one else on our college campus was up at that point. It was in- incredibly depressing. But there we were at 5.30 in the morning morning, atypical of college students, and, and teaching day in and day out. And we get to the end of the year, and at graduation, there's going to be a, an award for the, the best student teacher. Okay. Now, I'm sure it'll surprise you to think that it crossed my mind that might be me. Um, 
I mean, my students loved me, and we had fun, and it was good. And uh, I had a, a friend that was doing student teaching with me. Uh, his fictitious name for the purpose of this story is John. And uh, John and I, we'd ride together in the mornings. And here's the thing about John, though. I mean, he was a great guy, but he, I mean, he was a math teacher. And how hard can it be to teach math? I mean, come on. You break up in the book, you do a few exercises, and you go home. So uh, anyway, so it never occurred to me that, that John might get this award. And as you can guess, on the day of graduation, they announced the name of the recipient of this award, and it's this award, and it's John. And I thought, passed over of the uh, the injustices of the world. Uh, now, the sad thing for me is, uh, you know, that was, though I, I, I rebounded from that, it was 14 years ago, and I still remember it. Um, but what about for you, when you think about this experience of being passed over, what are some of the things that, that come to mind? You know that feeling, perhaps, of being passed over. And isn't it interesting, when we talk about being passed over, what we think of are the good things we thought we deserved, but somehow didn't get in the end. Now, this story comes in and tells us that there's something radically different and more significant about our lives. Not the good things we think we deserved and were passed over for, but that we were a people, actually, who deserved God's judgment and that He passed over us. That instead of His wrath, instead of the death of the firstborn here in Exodus 11 and 12, what did the people of Israel receive instead? His mercy, His grace, his liberation as he takes him out of Egypt. And we too are people who have been passed over. If you're someone following Jesus, you've been passed over with God's judgment. Instead, receive God's mercy and his grace and his welcoming embrace. Exodus tells us of this incredible passing over, of our being passed over for judgment. But as we move to the New Testament, we see where this picture of Passover takes us. Because this isn't where the Bible leaves us with this picture of redemption. It takes us, actually, to something greater. Here we see the people of Israel being passed over by virtue of the blood of a lamb, a sacrificial animal on their behalf. But as we move to the New Testament, we begin to see this greater passing over. Not because of the blood of a sacrificial animal, but because of a man who has come to us, Jesus. And this is where Passover points us. The beginning of the Gospel of John... Listen to John's words as he speaks about Jesus, the one who came in the flesh. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This incredibly high and exalted picture of the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, in glory, the one who created everything that exists, the one who holds the entire universe in his hand. This incredible picture of Jesus, of the Son of God, the one who then, in the person of Jesus, comes, takes that dirt of the ground out of which he first made Adam, takes on flesh himself, and steps into our world. The beginning of John, later in that first chapter, The Word who's introduced to us here in the flesh now as Jesus, how are we introduced to Him? John the Baptist, baptizing people in the Jordan River, he looks out and he sees Jesus coming. And here's what he says when he first sees Jesus. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians 5-7, 
Paul picks up this image of Jesus as the Lamb, and he says, For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. And then there's this glorious picture near the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 5 with this incredible worship service going on in heaven. And Jesus is, is pictured as a slain lamb who's been raised to life and is now seated on a throne. Listen to what uh, John tells us in Revelation 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And later in John and later in the Gospels, we see Jesus celebrating the very meal that we see instituted here in Exodus 11 and 12 as he sits down to celebrate a Passover meal with his disciples on the night before uh, he is condemned and crucified. And he takes this meal, this Passover meal, this symbol of God's great redemptive work, and he says, this meal points to me. He takes this Passover meal and he says, This is now becoming the Lord's Supper, my supper, my gift to you. Because as they eat this meal of this sacrificial lamb, what does Jesus say when he turns to his disciples? Take this bread that is broken, because this is my flesh broken for you. He takes the cup of Passover and what does he say? This cup is the blood of the new covenant of my blood that I'm going to shed for you. He takes this Passover meal and says, this points to me. And he looks at the Passover reality, this redemptive reality of God setting his people free and says, I'm going to tell you about the greater freedom that my death is going to win for you. Passover points us directly to Jesus. And that's what we celebrate every time we gather together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's the redemptive reality, the salvation reality, what God has done for us and what we see pictured in Exodus 11 and 12. But the other thing we need to look at this morning is a new redemptive consciousness. Because God means for this story of redemption, this story of salvation, to become the new center of our lives. He means for it to become the new lens through which we see everything about our lives. He means for this story to become our story, as we say often around here. We're meant to live in this story. Now, my children sort of inherently understand this. Uh, the imaginative world of our, of our home, w w everybody is, is labeled with, uh, you know, uh, with the characters of their imagination in the movies they see and the books we read. So Robin Hood is, an, uh, is a favorite right now. So oftentimes uh, Henry will pick up a sword and he'll look at me and he'll say, you're the sheriff of Nottingham and I'm Robin Hood. Um, that's the bad days. In the good days I get to be Robin Hood. Uh, but there are really bad days. For instance, this week when uh, my daughter looks at me as we're sitting around the breakfast table and out of nowhere, um, she looks at me and she says, Daddy, I think you're a pharaoh. 
I thought, this is a great story. This is not the guy I want to be in this story. And I said, but you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's mean. And she thought about that for a second. She said, you can be the pretend Pharaoh. The pretend Pharaoh's nice. She went on to say, it's the real Pharaoh's mean. Uh, so I felt a little bit better. Uh, my children understand that we, we inhabit the stories that we read, and we're to inhabit this story. This story is given to us, and it's about us and God's great redemptive work in our own lives. But as you know, if you're somebody following Jesus, that to know of this great redemptive reality, you can know of it, you can ascribe to it, without really having a sense of redemptive consciousness. In other words, you can know this is true without it really becoming the thing that is central for you, the thing that gives you hope on an actual day-to-day basis, the thing that you keep coming back to time and again to say, this is what is real. This is what is real about the universe. This is what is real about God. This is what is real about my relationship with Him. The more and more we would develop this redemptive consciousness. Well, what does this passage show us about maybe some steps to take in in making that true of us? Because if you're like me, there are times when in the middle of the week, in the middle of our work, in the middle of school and family and friends and temptation and sin... The fact of our redemption, of our salvation in Jesus may well seem intangible or hazy or distant. It's like that for me. How are we going to get this into ourselves? Well, here's what our passage shows us about developing a redemptive consciousness. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And what we're being told is that we now live in redemptive time. He says to them, This thing that I'm doing, taking you out of Egypt, giving you this meal and this sacrifice to remind you of it, this now becomes the central moment of your lives. The defining thing in your reality. It's now going to be the first day of the year for you. Your whole calendar revolves around this. Your whole life revolves around this. Everything you thought about your life and time before this changes now. What I am doing today, this is a center. Everything flows from this. A new redemptive time. He says your life, your redeemed life, begins now. So let me ask you this question. What month is the beginning of months for you? What's the first of months in your own experience of life right now? What's the first day on your calendar, the defining event, the central reality that's underlying the structure of your life? Here's some options. Maybe it's this. Maybe if you're married, maybe it's your wedding day. We celebrated a wedding here yesterday from two of our former William and Mary students, Luke and Hannah. And you know what a beautiful day that is and what a new reality that brings into your life if you're married, that you are now, once a single person now married, joined to this other person. Maybe for you, your central day is your wedding day. Your marriage, good or bad, has become the defining reality of your life. Or maybe your central day is Mother's Day or Father's Day. Maybe your children have become the central reality of your life. Maybe that's the thing that you're looking to for meaning. Or maybe it's the day you were promoted, or the day you got the job, or the day you retired. Many of those may be good days. But maybe for you, the first day on your calendar might well be a tragic day. 
Maybe it's the day that you found out about your cancer. Or the day your spouse or child or friend died. Maybe it's the day that you were abused as a child. Or the day that as a college student you were raped by a friend. Maybe it's the day that you heard someone look at you and say, I don't love you anymore. Maybe that has become your central day. Well, what happens when we make any one of these days our central day, good or bad, when that becomes the first day on our calendar? What happens if it's your marriage day, for example, when you make your marriage, which is a good gift from God, the chief thing, the ultimate source of your joy and hope and rest? Well, then when things are going well in your marriage, then everything in life is, is fine. But what happens when you fight or when your spouse seriously lets you down? Or when your marriage becomes so sick that you're scared it's going to die? What happens? You're utterly crushed. You're laid flat because the foundation of your life has been yanked out beneath your feet. Now for anyone, marital struggles are difficult and hard. It's real pain, real disappointment. But if your marriage has become the foundation of your life... You're not simply hurt, you're devastated. It doesn't simply rattle your life, it utterly lays it flat. And why? Because as good and beautiful as marriage is, it can't hold the weight that you put on it when you make it the central thing, because it was never meant to bear that kind of weight in your life. But what happens when you make Mother's Day or Father's Day your, your identity as a parent, when you make that the central reality of your life? Well, when things are going well, when your children are behaving well, in our house, when your children are potty training well, <laughs> when they're making the grade, when they get their top pick of colleges, or they're not drinking, or they're not getting pregnant, or they're marrying the right spouse, or achieving their career, then you feel great and affirmed and successful. And so when your friends come and ask you, how are your kids doing? You can hold your head high. They're doing just great. Let me tell you about it. But what happens when uh, your children aren't making the grade? Things aren't going well. When they have gotten into that trouble, when they have not lived up to your expectations. What happens then when your friends come and ask, how are your children doing? You mumble something, but really you just want to hang your head in shame. Because your children are your defining reality. And if things are doing going well with them, your life is secure. And if it's not, your own identity crumbling at your feet. Every parent cares when their children struggle. But when they become the center of your own reality, when they are your righteousness, then for them to be threatened, everything crumbles. And what are you going to do? You're going to squeeze that much harder. You're going to make them perform. You're going to shame them until they do. You're going to crush them because you're asking them to bear a weight that they were never meant to bear in your lives. Or take one of the tragic days, the day you heard the message in words or in actions, I don't love you anymore. Then what happens? You might go in one of two directions. One, maybe you're going to spend the rest of your life doing all that you can to win the love of those around you. You look at what happened to you and you say, that will never happen again. I will win their love. I will do what it takes. And you are exhausted and demoralized. Or maybe you go in the other direction. That will never happen to me again. I will never let anyone that close again. 
and you harden yourself and you wall yourself off. But in Christ we have something better than this, much better than this. A better first day, a better foundation for our lives. Because in Christ the salvation and grace and goodness of Jesus are lavished on us and are now to be the defining reality of all of life for us. This is to be our first of months. Our first day of the year. Our defining reality. This central day, our redemption, our salvation, our membership in God's family, His kingdom, our new status as a son or daughter in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that can never be shaken or destroyed, an adoption into God's family that can never be revoked or removed, a final payment for sin on the cross that can never be overcome. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's what the Israelites are experiencing in Passover, new creation. Something utterly new God is doing in their life as He frees them. A new first day, a new first month. And that is what happens to us in Christ. New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. A new reality, a new first and foundational day. And that sends us now back into all the other days of our lives. Back into our marriages, no longer looking to our spouse to be the bedrock of our lives, but looking instead to Christ. And if you're resting on Jesus and not on your spouse, you can now find yourself free to actually love your spouse and not demand from them. To actually do the hard work of your marriage. To actually love when you are not receiving your spouse's love in return. Because though your lack of, the lack of love from your spouse is painful, it is not the defining reality of your life anymore. The love of Jesus is. And back into your role as parents. Loving your children rather than manipulating them and crushing them when they fail. Because your children matter deeply to you, but they are no longer the pillar that is holding up your entire identity. Your foundation is Jesus, and you're now free to love your children, to love them, even as they struggle. So how do we get this gospel down deep into us? I think what we see here foundationally is that we learn to live in redemptive time. And along with that, and just briefly, we cultivate a redemptive memory. Look with me at 12, chapter 12, verses 23, 24 through 27. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You will say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. What's Moses telling the people? What's God telling the people through Moses? He's saying that you're going to remember this day. For the Passover, he says, you're going to celebrate this every year and remember that this is the beginning of months for you. That you're going to cultivate and develop a redemptive memory. A regular reminder of what God's done for them. That they would remember their story. They would remember through sacrifice and through a meal and through worship. And we too are people as Christians who are called to remember. And that's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper together regular reminders of this new moment in history, this new defining reality, this new first of days for us. 
Would we this week even live in that first of days more and more as we look to Jesus who is our hope? Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you and as people of Israel did. We worship you because of your great acts of redemption, your great care for us, your people. And Father, we ask that you would drive this down deep in our hearts, that we would cultivate more and more a redemptive consciousness. That not only would we know and believe the facts of salvation in Jesus, but that that would become the central and defining reality of our lives in very tangible ways. In our families, with our spouses, with our friends, at work, as we interact with our neighbors, we we rest in you for it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.